0: Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Friends and Experts podcast, where I speak to some friends and some experts, and sometimes both. To support the Friends and Experts podcast, please visit anchor.fm slash friends and experts and click the support the podcast button. Today's guest is a friend. Rebecca L. Frazier is a writer and consultant who has extensively covered the science of farming and agriculture. She is also the author of the newly released fiction piece, The Orderly, and the upcoming work, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Mike. Great to be here.
0: Before we get into the details about climate change and the world of agriculture, uh, how did you get into the position to write about this?
1: Um, it's kind of funny, actually. Um, back in 2007, I had offered to volunteer for a um, a nonprofit organization near me that does work in social and economic development in developing nations. So one day, the executive director approached me and said. And I said, you know, if you ever need a writer, let me know. But but I couldn't really imagine how they would need a writer. I hadn't worked with nonprofits before, and my training was in um, screenwriting. So, uh, but one day, the executive director came to me and said, you know, we're having a conference about the effects of landmines in coffee-growing regions, and I would like you to come and interview some of the coffee growers who will be visiting from Colombia and Nicaragua who have been affected by landmines. And I'd like you to, to interview some of the experts who will be at this conference and then write some articles and get them published in these coffee industry trade magazines. And I said, sure, I can do that. Except I had never written an article, so then I thought about that and I thought. <laughs> oh my God, I don't know how to do this. But um, but I went to the conference and I interviewed everybody and it was very eye-opening. Then I uh, fortunately, uh, one of the people there said, you know, oh, I know the editor of these two coffee industry trade magazines. Contact them and tell them that I sent you. So, so that actually turned out to be really easy to get those pieces published. But then I had a friend... Who knew that I was doing this and he said, you know, I write articles for magazines all the time and you could really make your living doing this and um, I have this access to this database called media directory and you can just send a blanket cover letter to like hundreds of magazine editors in one shot. So anyway, he taught me how to do it. He gave me his login, and I did that. I sent out just this blanket email, and I heard back from the person who at the time was the editor of Growing Magazine. He invited me to write an article about the art and science of seed research, and I knew nothing about agriculture. Uh, I mean, I lived in a rural area, but I, I had not spent much time on farms. And But again, I accepted the challenge and interviewed people and wrote an article and it ended up being the cover story. And the editor liked the work so well that he then invited me to take over the monthly column about seed science and research. So that was the beginning. That was how I ended up writing about agriculture. And then he eventually left. There was a new editor. She and I, you know, got on quite well. And, and so all this time, you know, I, I wrote that, Column for five years and wrote a number of feature articles, many of them on the cover of either Growing Magazine or their sister publication Farming. And then, uh, lo and behold, this this new editor named Mike Freeze showed up, and we, <laughs> and the rest is history. Uh, you know.
0: <laughs> um, yes.
1: <laughs> although I, I should say that as I was wrapping up the the seed science column and. One thing that all of the scientists that I was interviewing for the last few columns were talking about at that time was researching to create crops that would be able to withstand the effects of climate change. So I hadn't heard much about climate change other than Al Gore's movie and a few other things here and there that, you know, I I didn't fully understand it, but the, the more I was speaking to people, in about the issue as it related to agriculture, the more I was really, um, it, it just was a very stark awakening for me. And so then as you know, that's how I ended up pitching you the idea of writing a monthly column about climate change and agriculture.
0: I guess, you know, knowledge meets opportunity in that sense where when you had pitched me when you had pitched me that idea, yeah, I thought that was very intriguing, and uh, definitely thought this was something different that hasn't been covered in this particular agricultural magazine. One of the things that I thought that was pretty interesting when you were covering this was the uh, toward the you know toward the new administration that we have now, and the 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 trouble that you had with the USDA scientists. Really? If you remember that, uh, I- could, could you could you elaborate on that just to kind of tell the listeners what we're talking about at least?
1: Yeah, that was pretty mind-blowing. I, you know, In 10 years covering agriculture, I spoke with USDA scientists on a regular basis about all sorts of research topics. And in the first year that I was writing the climate change column, there was no change in that. So I just, you know, I've had a good relationship with the press officers at USDA and, and with many of the scientists. And um, and then all of a sudden in early 2017, I started getting runaround and, and I was, I did not know what was going on. And, um, you know, scientists were avoiding my calls or were, um, returning them, but saying, Oh, I just can't find the time. And, and then Finally, the shock to me was a scientist who um everyone said, Oh, you have to speak with this man. And I'm I don't even want to name him now because I I don't even I don't even know if that will somehow get him in trouble. So he agreed to speak with me. And then like the day of our interview canceled. And I was sending emails and calling and reaching out to the press officer. What has happened? Finally, the press officer called me and said, you know, I, I just feel I owe you an explanation. It's not you. The administration has put a gag order on all of our scientists, all USDA scientists. They are no longer allowed to discuss Anything having to do with climate change. If you want to talk about varieties of flowers, that's fine, but they cannot discuss climate change with you. And the administration is taking names. And she said, the scientists are furious. I have, and I've been here for 29 years. I've never seen anything like this, but I don't know what to tell you. We just, we just can't help you because people don't want to lose their jobs.
0: That was just crazy when we approached that particular moment when we were working together. I, I thought that was mind boggling.
1: Yeah. I remember yeah. being so nervous about it that I didn't want to even like send you a normal text message or an email. Like I wrote to you on WhatsApp. Because...
0: Yes. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> like I said, it's just mind boggling. You, you wouldn't think that you would get such resistance. I mean, you knew that it would be some contrarian View that was going to surface, but you didn't think that it was just going to be a gag order and no communication at all concerning that particular subject. No. Yeah, it's you know that was the that was one of the memories that that I had when we had worked together on this and your book that's coming out now. Oh, well, it's not coming out now, but it's coming out pretty soon. Yeah,
1: December Uh, nineteenth
0: is the publication date. December nineteenth.
1: Pre order online um, on the ebook versions are available for pre order now as of today.
0: So, wait way, way to plug, <laughs> way to the plug there. Um,
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: no, no problem. So, <laughs> so, this new book, A uh, Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, um, is correct me if I'm wrong, a, a summary of the the times that you you had spent as columnist with Growing Magazine, uh, with those features and some additional notes that you had talked to others, other ex- experts in the field about climate change, is that is that kind of a correct one word description of your book?
1: Hey, um, yeah, I mean, I would have, that wasn't one word, by the way, Mike. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I have to give you a little little guff. Um, because that's the nature of our friendship, but um it, yeah, I mean, I would say that is that's pretty accurate. It's after the magazine folded, uh, you know, they had such a great resource online with all of these PDF versions of the magazine, and I just assumed that those would stay online in perpetuity. And then when I discovered that those had been taken down and that, you know, maybe in some kind of alternate web universe, there was a way to access them, but it was not obvious to me. It kind of hit me that farmers really need this information because they can't, they can't get, you know, some of the interviews that I have in this book, I couldn't get today. Mm -hmm. So um so this is not information that's widely available and uh even even with the fourth national climate assessment coming out as it uh, as it did a couple of weeks ago you know it's still this is the articles that I wrote for the magazine I think were very digestible you know my writing style um for that column was pretty Uh, for lack of a better word, folksy and um,
0: personable, personable would be a good word.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I like that word so much better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is why you're a good editor. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of scientific writing really isn't. So this book has interviews that no one could get today, as well as, you know, some things that I didn't get to publish because the magazines folded to, you know, to our surprise (laughs) Uh, when I, and I still had plans for the column. So, uh, (laughs) it's fun that there's some new content in this, this book. Um, so it doesn't, it's, you know, I didn't want to make it just like a regurgitation or a compilation. It, it's kind of a comp- compilation plus. Um, and it's got a great foreword written by Andre Loy, who is the International Director of Regeneration International. He's a pretty amazing person. Yeah, he used to run iPhone, International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements. And I met him at the uh, Northeast Organic Farming Association conference in Massachusetts on a summer night when we had the most violent thunder and lightning storm any of us experienced, maybe in a long time, if not ever. <laughs> and I was interviewing him about climate change, and he had been speaking about climate change. And then I interviewed him after the meeting, and as this storm was occurring, it was really wild.
0: <laughs> well, let's get into the book. The I, I know from... My time as editor, when we were doing these columns, um, can you elaborate for the audience about this, just the parallels and links between farming and climate change and why and how it's important for farmers and the outside public to realize that connection?
1: Well, first of all, Farmers have so much power in this game, and they are not being told that. What they're being told is, oh, it's too hard. Don't take this on. You don't have to worry about it. But the fact is that agriculture contributes 75% of the nitrous oxide that is emitted into the atmosphere, and nitrous oxide stays in the atmosphere 300 times longer than carbon dioxide. So it's, it's a huge player in global warming, which some scientists are now calling climate disruption because they feel the term climate change is it's too wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's point one. It's just the nitrous oxide. And, and so farmers have the ability to change the amount of nitrous oxide that they're emitting through many alterations to their practices, including changing their fertilization practices. Smallholder farmers can certainly like maybe use less mechanization. Farmers that have more money, which granted is (laughs) few and far between, but if they are using mechanization, you know, certainly switching to a vehicle that doesn't use all of the, um, you know, that's maybe an electric vehicle or a hybrid or something would be helpful. But honestly, the amount of, of nitrous oxide that's just emitted from um, synthetic fertilizer is, I, I don't have the actual numbers in my head offhand, but just making that shift would be huge. The other thing is that there are regenerative agricultural practices, things like push-pull agriculture, where the farmer actually plants their crop, but then alongside the crop, they have plants that attract beneficial insects, insects that support the crop. And then across the way from the crop, they have plants that attract the pests to the crop. So essentially the, on the crop side where you have it, that's where you're pulling the, the beneficial plant is pulling beneficial insects and also repelling the pests. And then across the way, the other plant is pulling the pests away. So it's, that's why they call it push-pull, but it's, it's like a pretty simple concept. But it's just a matter of teaching people. They've been doing this in Kenya uh, for many years, very successfully. So, you know, when you hear about organizations that are saying, well, we're helping farmers in Africa by giving them all sorts of fertilizer and weed killer and whatever else... That's not helping and it's not necessary because this other practice, this regenerative agricultural practice, has also been in use in that same region for, you know, many years and it's been very successful. Another thing is that by using certain plants, some native plants, some just crops with deep root systems, having certain like no-till kind of native no-till crops around or non-crops around the the food crops. Farmers can actually sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, pulling, pulling the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in the soil that's, you know, and of course, carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas that gets the most attention. Um, So just through planting practices, farmers can make a huge positive impact in stemming the tide of climate change. And I think the media and and I don't even, you know, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just out of lack of knowledge but I do think the media have done a huge disservice by saying that the big problem with agriculture is methane, you know, and then talking about cows, like, yes, that's also an issue, but, but these things, you know, you don't have to get rid of your livestock. If you have livestock, you can simply adapt some of your growing practices and make a really positive impact. So To me, I I just think I really, I like everything that I write, maybe not fiction, but anything nonfiction that I'm writing, I really want it to be empowering to whomever is going to read it. And so that was the goal of the climate column, and that is
0: the goal of this book. You were just talking about livestock. And one part of your book that I was really intrigued with was the chapter on the post-carbon Farming system in practice and the work at Stone Barns Agricultural Center. Um, could you speak more upon that? Uh, I thought it was fascinating.
1: Okay. Um, and I should, by the way, I- I'm so glad you asked me this question because I'm realizing that for some strange reason I have not corrected the name of the place in my book, so I, I'm glad I have the opportunity to do it before it's published. Mm-hmm. It's actually Stone Barn's Center for Food and Agriculture. It's kind of... I mean, if, if I was a farmer, it would be like my fantasy. <laughs> my fantasy <laughs> it's a nonprofit. Jack Algier is the head farmer there, and he worked with the executive director of the organization to actually develop this farm. I mean, he really he got to plan everything, not just the structures. I mean, some of the buildings were there, but how how everything would operate. And so, for example, they built this greenhouse. It actually opens, the roof opens. It's all glass and steel, and the roof opens to let in natural light and rain. But then if the weather is inclement, I mean, you know, unseasonably, you know, too much rain or whatever, they can just close the roof. They have a training program for new farmers. They, uh, I mean, he even designed like their parking. He just like thought went into every aspect of this place. They also have an award winning Restaurant called Blue Hill, where the meals are like three hundred dollars a plate. So they provide the food for this restaurant, but also the chef. If if the chef doesn't like the quality of what's being offered, he'll decline it. So Algier and his staff have, you know, they have to make sure that they are producing the best quality, so that they can. Serve this restaurant, they also have a CSA. Algier was a vegan for eight years and has a great sensitivity to animals, but also feels that animals have a real place in a healthy farming system. And I think if there's one thing that he said to me that really stuck with me and that I would like to leave people with, it's that our intention is to find a way out of what has essentially been not working. He said that agriculture could save the planet, but at the moment, it's the thing that's ruining it, or words to that effect.
0: Um, that was, that was I think that was in the book. You, you put that in the book. I remember reading that and that, that stood out.
1: But the thing that I really wanted to share, which I cannot find, is he said, we are dealing in health, here all the time. And to me, that is, you know, when you look at the mindset of what many farmers espouse, it's, you know, it's fighting pests, fighting this, fighting disease. His feeling is like, no, we're not fighting this stuff. We're just promoting health. And health of a system, not just health of, like, whoever's eating the food. But, like, and the he,
0: overall, the, the whole process of it, the whole agricultural process, it being exercise and health.
1: Mm-hmm. This chapter is this was, you know, something that I was going to put in the in the magazine and didn't get the chance to. So it's a really special interview, and it's it's all new content that has not been published anywhere. And it's really the work that they're doing at Stone Barns is a really great example of the post-carbon farm, in, in my opinion.
0: You've been writing about climate change for so long. I know when we were doing these columns, I think it's going on two, three years now. Mm-hmm that we've done this and since then you know we had hurricanes we had wildfires not too long ago and then the knuffle about the government report about climate change put i guess pushing it more into the the forefront currently you know there's snowstorms in virginia and north and south Carolina and it's it's this, this gradual change of our climate i guess the word that you use, climate disruption, is more appropriate. I just wanted to ask you what us humans can do to deal with people on the other side, the skeptics who have their views on climate change. What can we do to have that particular conversation? Because I think as time goes on, I think the evidence will will grow. Mm -hmm. And right now, (laughs) there are people that are denying the things that are happening right how do you have that conversation with someone
1: Uh, it's you know i mean the way that i've had it and this isn't necessarily the right way but but the way that i've had it is to just share the information that i've learned when when people try to deny that climate change is existing which i've had a number of people say you know well Everything's changing. The climate's always been changing. That's, you know, the earth is all you what know, sense, you know, evolution, the uh, we blah blah blah. And and that's actually why David Dreesen from Syracuse University who read the book and said you really need to use the term, the term climate disruption because Climate change is too easy to refute. That term has been corrupted. So part of it is is just languaging and, and just saying, well, you know, I I don't know. Do you find a hurricane uh, that takes the electricity out on an island for over a year? Do you find that disruptive? I feel like the people in Puerto Rico probably think it's disruptive. Do you?
0: Do you yes, and, and definitely the people in Mexico Beach and Panama Beach
1: yeah, I mean it just it's global. That's the point that I try to make in the first chapter of the book. These are not isolated incidents. This web of isolated incidents has been happening so much more frequently in the last several years and with such greater intensity that scientists feel confident saying the incidents are connected and <laughs> <laughs> result of a single global event. The overall rise in temperature, we now know this is climate disruption. I mean, this is, and scientists have been saying this since the 1980s. And people who don't want to deal with change keep denying it. Yeah, I think I think talking to regular people, one thing that I tend to talk about, and I, I mean non-farmers, I tend to talk about what you can do in your garden, or in your lawn and how having you know Kentucky bluegrass is one, sure, I, it's pretty, but there are a lot of native plants that are pretty that support the environment, that um, have deep root systems and those deep root systems sequester carbon. Kentucky bluegrass has a little one inch root system that's not doing anything. Kentucky bluegrass requires watering and fertilizing to stay pretty and green. And mowing, which for most people means releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, whereas native grasses, they they really don't need to be mowed. They're tall, they're beautiful or other native, they're low growing native plants that, you know, it depends on where you are, what those plants are. Some of them, you know, in the Northeast, we have a native strawberry that's low growing and it spreads and it's beautiful. And then you have yummy food that you can nibble on if you want to, or that can just feed the birds. But that stuff is like low to zero maintenance and so much better for the environment, not to mention pollinators and birds. So, so I talk to people about things like that. You know, I've been an environmentalist for a lot longer than I even understood climate change. So I talk to people about buying organic food for the environment, you know, not to mention personal health, Um, driving only when necessary. I personally don't have the money for a hybrid or an electric vehicle. I'd love to. But what I do is I walk whenever it's feasible. If If I can make the time, I do that instead of driving. That's better for my health and better for the environment. Don't leave your car idling while you're sitting in it. There's no need to have your car engine running. If you're cold, bring a blanket in the car, but don't leave it running. That's just releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. And for what purpose? I just think there are these little changes that people can make. And, you know, if it's just one person making it, maybe not so helpful, but if we can all get our minds around this, then,
0: um, then there's a lot that we can do. That that pretty much sums it up, Rebecca. Uh, you know, you should never underestimate the power of one, and that's all it takes for one to, to have another do it, and then it just spreads. And what you were just mentioning about the, the phrasing and the communication of how to deliver this message of, on how to deal with climate change is, is important. And I think that once more people get an idea of what this is, then we can usually move to an answer. So I think, sadly, we're in the middle of that stage right now.
1: We are. And I think, and what's happened is, you know, I mean, if you think about who's resisting, acknowledging that climate change exists, it's people who stand to have to spend a lot of money or lose money dealing with it. And I can certainly understand that that's not attractive, but But if you think long-term, it's really the, (laughs) the only solution. And so, and if you, if you pay attention to what you're hearing in the media and reading, I mean, go for a walk, go for a walk every day in the same place and notice, do you pass a river? Notice when it's high and when it's low notice, How the plants are, how the leaves are changing in the fall, is that normal? I've seen a lot of shifts just, and I've only lived where I live now for two years, but just in the last two years, I've seen adjustments in the way that the plants are behaving. And certainly I lived somewhere for 10 years before that and walked every day and I could see like, oh, that's not a healthy shift. Those trees no longer look healthy. Why are they blooming in November? That's not supposed to happen. And like these, there are all these little signs and they're basically symptoms of a global illness called climate disruption. So but we we really can all do something about it, whether we're farmers or whether we're just average folks. And hey, by the way, we can support farmers in making the changes that they really that we need them to make because i think this is another really key thing if farmers don't get this right we are going to have food shortages globally it's in their best interest to speak to their farmers and say please shift to regenerative agricultural pl- practices yes i will pay more if you need me to I am willing to pay an extra dollar per head of lettuce. It's worth it for the me of 2025. It's worth it for the me of 2050. I mean, let's not even talk about children and grandchildren. Some people don't have them, but just think about yourself in 15 years. Do you want to be able to eat? Do you not want to have food shortages? Do you want to live in a world where people aren't starting to riot because they don't have food? where we're not rife with human diseases because there are food shortages. I mean, this is like what we're looking at. That's kind of a scary thing and I don't like to really talk about that, but it those are the projections from the scientists who have been dealing with this for 30 odd years, 30 plus years. We we really can't keep pretending that it's an option to address.
0: That's the scary thing about all of this is when people realize what's going on unfortunately i think it might be too late you presented a pretty stark uh, alternative if we do not act as humans however i want to end this on a good note actually (laughs) (laughs) and on a good vibe so um i just wanted to also talk to you about your your non i'm sorry not non-fiction piece but your fiction piece the orderly Uh, i know you just did the reading at yale university your Mm -hmm. alma mater Yep. and how did that go by the way
1: it went well you know unfortunately we um we didn't realize that we had booked it on the same night that ta coates was coming to yale So, so I don't know. Uh if you have a choice yeah. <laughs> uh do you wanna hear the person who just published her first novel? Um, or do you wanna hear the world renowned <laughs> author and journalist? Um, I had a small audience mm-hmm. but but they were engaged and they bought books and and we had a great time. <laughs> so Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for asking. And, and yeah, hopefully the next time I do a reading, I won't have that kind of competition.
0: <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, so let's talk about the orally just for a few. Um, what, what is the, the book about uh, and what was your inspiration on, on writing it?
1: Um, well, so that <laughs> that's actually a long story. So I'm going to try and make it really brief. The book is uh, it's set during the Vietnam era, mm-hmm. the Vietnam War era, 1969 to the early 70s. It's the story of a a man who is a medical miracle at age 29. Francis McKenzie is believed to be the oldest person alive with cystic fibrosis which is a chronic illness and at that time people were not expected to live past infancy with the disease so at age 29 he really wasn't considered to be a medical miracle so he has his own struggles and he's he because of his the obvious, impermanent nature of his life. He doesn't believe he really can take a chance on love and, you know, he completely writes off marriage and he's not able to father children, but he works as an orderly in a psychiatric ward in, at a hospital in Massachusetts. And one day This woman is wheeled in. She's just undergone a trauma. He sees something in her and hopes the best for her. But then over the course of her recuperation, they both start to feel something and um, they can't act on it and assume that it was just kind of a strange and special moment. But fate has other ideas. So. The inspiration for it is is even weirder. It is actually very loosely inspired by my uncle and the story of how he met his wife. Okay. Yeah, my uncle was that medical miracle. He lived to be 59. With cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. I mean when he was born the, the doctors didn't even know what the disease was, never mind how to help him. But he did meet his wife, not in the 60s. I think they met sometime in the 70s. In those days, they used to have socialization dances on the psychiatric wards because they wanted to teach the patients to make safe physical contact with other people. And the staff were not supposed to dance with the patients unless the patients asked them to teach them a dance step. Hmm. So my uncle ended up dancing with this woman. They both knew that they had found their soulmates and they, they said to each other, this is not the right time, but if it's meant to be, we will meet again. And 11 years later they did. They, she was clearly, you know, had recovered Mm -hmm. and was living life and they, they ran into each other at some, I don't know, Elks club dance or something. (laughs) And they danced and he went home with her and he never left and they, they got married and yeah,
0: that's that's a beautiful story. I think so. <laughs>
1: it's really inspiring, actually. Um, so yeah, when they told me that story i I had very few conversations with my uncle my uncle actually, we weren't that close and and I don't think he was very talkative like at family events. The rest of us are pretty chatty, but um <laughs> not remember him being that way but yeah one one day, I asked. Him and his wife. How, how did you meet? And that was the story they told me, and I, <laughs> I was just floored. But wow! It stayed. Wow. They they both passed. Um,
0: mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Before we before we go, Rebecca, uh, <laughs> do you have any other things on tap?
1: Um. So I am working on my second novel. It's inspired by my passion for the environment by the work that I did for the farming magazines. Although this one doesn't deal with agriculture. um, But romance is the leading category in fiction. I feel like a nonfiction book will reach a certain number of people who may or may not listen. But I think that including environmental education in a romance novel is at least I hope it's a good way to reach people and entertain them as well as inform them and inspire them to you know be more mindful of the environment and and take actions that that benefit us all so that's that's what I'm working on because I really think you know I think one thing that maybe if I didn't hammer this message home with the climate change issue I just want to try and reiterate it because it's you know, when people talk about like, save the earth or, you know, do it for the environment or whatever. That's all shit. I'm sorry. Maybe I should, that's,
0: that's, that's okay. We're we're grown adults okay. here.
1: Okay. Uh, um, I mean, the earth doesn't care. Like it's not, and, and a lot of people don't care about the earth. It's, so let's be a little more selfish. Let's just say, I want to live in a world where I can wake up and feel fairly confident I won't walk into a deluge or that the index isn't so blistering that I pass out walking down the street or that I have to use air conditioning instead of just opening my windows, which I prefer to do. Like, I, I, don't, I, I want to live in a world where where I can walk out and, you know, know that, Hey, it's springtime. The flowers are going to be in bloom. The quality of my air is clean so I can breathe. I want to be able to swim in the ocean and have it be clean and not filled with like weird things. Let's just be selfish about it. Don't do it for the earth. Don't even do it for your children. Do it for yourself, for you. Be selfish.
0: Well, that's a good message to end on. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Rebecca, you know I, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show and discussing all of this. I know it's very much a passion for you, and I'm glad to have you on to express that.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, Mike. It, it's um, I hope I hope a lot of people listen to the show and and I love what you're doing with it so far. It's a lot of fun, so keep it Thanks up.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Well, that was Rebecca L. Frazier, a writer and consultant and author of A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption and The Orderly as well. Um, To support the Friends and Experts podcast, please visit anchor.fm slash friends and experts. And please remember to click the support the podcast button and That's it for episode six of the Friends and Experts podcast. My name is Michael Fries, and have a great day, everyone.